Welcome to the Battle Archive. Since 2005, the Academy of Ideas has organised the Battle of Ideas Festival with debates on the key cultural, political and scientific issues of the day. We are proud to be the home for unfettered debate, the People's Parliament, the place where new ideas come alive in open discussion. And now we are opening our vault, making our recordings of public debate available to you free to revisit and share as often as you like. For more free speech content and news on our next festival, subscribe below or head to academyofideas.org.uk. But for now, enjoy the discussion. Thanks, Sonia. Right, so my name's Tony Gilland. Uh, I am here to share this debate. Trust me, I'm your doctor. Our GP's in crisis. Uh, I'm not going to give you a long preamble because we all know what we're here to debate. This is an issue that affects all of us. It's of great concern to all of us with regards to ourselves, our, our loved ones, our friends and society. We all know why we've turned up to this debate and we have our different uh, perceptions and take, take on it. So I'm, I'm not going to do a, a preamble. Just one thing I would like to say though, we cannot address uh, in, in this hour and a half all of the issues around the National Health Service. So we are here to talk about GPs, whether they are in, in crisis, and if so, why. Obviously that does have connections and wider ramifications, but we do need to try and stick to that uh, uh, brief. Um, just so you know, I am a teacher of maths and economics. Uh, formerly I was a science and society director at the uh, Academy of Ideas, which I was involved with with Claire Fox when it was established in 2000 and I'm absolutely delighted to be here I had a fantastic time over Saturday and today so far I hope you have I can see lots of smiles so I think you are getting some good conversations and I know uh, this afternoon won't be any different so I'm going to briefly introduce our speakers as you've probably gathered from previous debates you're not going to hear very much about each speaker even though they've all got these amazing biographies uh, that we encourage you to read on the website uh, so, first to speak will be Professor uh, Dane Claire Gerarda, uh, here on my far left. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to make the usual comments. Uh, people can discover uh, uh, your political opinions uh, as you... Uh, as you, uh, you have none, I don't believe that. Um, <laughs> they can discover your political opinions as you uh, speak. Uh, but uh, Claire is a London-based GP, and she is the president of the Royal College of General Practitioners. So, uh, really fantastic to have Claire with us here. Uh, to the left of Claire, sorry, to my immediate left is Charlotte Pickles, uh, who's spoken already, I think, on one of our other uh, uh, panels uh, earlier. She's the director of Reform and also a former uh, managing editor of a, a fantastic, uh, relatively new publication, uh, Unheard. She's also a member of the Social Security Advisory uh, Committee and the NHS Assembly. So welcome, Charlotte. Thanks for being with us. On my right, we have Alison Pearson. Alison will be known to uh, readers of The Telegraph and many others. Uh, um, but for, to readers of The Telegraph, she'll be known as one of their columnists and chief interviewers. Uh, she's the co-presenter of the uh, really enjoyable podcast Planet Normal and the author... Of I don't know how she does it. Published 20 years ago, 4 million copies sold in 32 languages. So if you haven't read it yet, now's the time to do so. 
Okay, uh, so delighted to have you with us, Alison. Thank you. Uh, next to Alison and going forth will be Joe Phillips. Uh, welcome, Joe. Joe's a journalist, uh, co-author of Why Vote and Why Join a Trade Union. She's been a political advisor, I think, to Paddy Ashton. That's right. Yeah, and is uh, also a fellow of Radix, a centre-left think tank. And last to speak, we have Sheila Lewis. Sheila is a retired management consultant. Uh, she's a patient member at Guy's and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. <coughs> That's our panel. They have five minutes maximum. That's their warning card after one minute. <laughs> and that's sending them off. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. OK, so without further ado, Claire, please. Thank you. Yes, we are in crisis. I've been... In the same practice for more than 30 years. And what I do now in and outside the consulting room bears absolutely no resemblance to when I first started. Not only have the systems, processes, and practices changed, but the patients are very different. In the past, my surgeries were full of communicable diseases TB, HIV, and other infections. And of the others, those with respiratory disease, heart attacks, cancer and strokes, they died prematurely. Now it's not unusual for a single patient to have five or more long-term diseases and to be on ten or more medicines. What the GP does now, what I do, is more, two more, to a greater degree of complexity than ever before and more than any other GP in the world. And the more we do, the more is sent our way, with the mantra, GP is best placed to justify this. When I started, 90% of the care of all diabetes was carried out by specialists in hospital. Now it's 90% by me. The same holds for almost all conditions. GPs carry out 80% of the work in the NHS for only 10% of its budget. We refer around one in 20 patients to specialists. Now far from not working, we're working harder than ever. And despite the problems our patients experience, we're still the most accessible part of the health service, addressing not just the physical needs of our patients, but their social, psychological, and non-medical Few patients go to their surgeons to talk about the cost of living crisis, or their home, or domestic violence. In the 1990s, patients would consult on average three times per year. Now it's nearly six times per year. That means 350 million consultations per year. When I started, a patient had on average five minutes in the consulting room. Now, so complex in our patients that the average is 12, and even that's not enough. More patients seen by fewer GPs. When I started, work was largely only in the consulting room. Now it's more so outside. Addressing the needs not just of the patients in the clinic, but making sure we find those who don't come, the homeless, drug users, refugees, and other hard-to-reach groups. We are the backstop for much of prevention screening, immunisation. We lead teams and run clinical services, such as those in mental health, nursing homes, 
care of the frail elderly, drug misuse, gambling, women's health and so on, filling gaps in specialist services. We take leading roles in planning care for our local communities. We train and supervise our ever-growing number of allied health professionals. But as we have done more, and as we've stepped outside the consulting room, there is no one there to replace us. Our numbers in real terms are dropping, with more patients being seen by fewer GPs, and the ones left are exhausted. Over the decades, we flexed, adapted, modernised, innovated to meet new demands. But now we cannot do any more. We cannot work harder or smarter. Unless the system, designed for the 15th century, adapts for the 21st, I fear for the survival of my profession. I put it at two to three more years. Of the hundred or so specialties on the medical register, only one are GPs. Yet without us, everyone will be worse off. My profession is suffering. We feel guilty at not being able to provide you with the care you need. But we cannot do any more. My wonderful colleagues are working so hard in and out of the consulting room. And it makes sense to protect us. For less than 25p per day, we keep the NHS accessible, value for money and safe. We know things are bad, and I'm truly sorry. But blaming us, personally, really and truly doesn't help. We need protecting for all of our sakes. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. <laughs> OK, thanks very much. Uh, Charlotte, please. Thank you very much. Um, Claire obviously has kind of brought uh, the situation for GPs today to uh, the fore with kind of very colourful, you know, direct experience uh, there for us. My answer is also yes. I don't quite know how anyone would answer no to the question. Uh, it, are GPs as primary care in crisis? But I wanted to break it down into what are those components? Why are they in crisis? First of all, there's a crisis of confidence. So the public are no longer satisfied with the NHS in general uh, and GPs or primary care within that. So the latest statistics from polling uh, earlier this year showed that just 38% are uh, satisfied with uh, GP services. That's a 30 percentage point drop since 2019. And partly because of another crisis. That's the crisis in access and care. So... Claire has, again, brilliantly kind of illustrated the volume of activities and the diversity activities uh, that GPs are doing. But ultimately, we have a situation where only around half of people find it easy to get through to their GP surgery, where a lot of people can't make an appointment on the day. Now, we can discuss whether they should be able to access an appointment on the day. But clearly, there is an issue with access and if there's an issue of access, there's then an issue of care. Because if you're not accessing timely health care, you're not then getting to the diagnostics, you're not getting to the treatment in the timely fashion that a high-quality health care service uh, would enable. We've also, and again, partly explaining those first two, got a crisis in workforce. We have uh, GPs leaving in their droves, often because of the demands that we've heard about, the pressures, the burnout... We've also got a lot of GPs working part-time, an increasing number working fewer hours, which clearly there, if, the, if you reduce your hours, then there are fewer appointments in the system. But also, and again, picking up on Claire's point, 
the NHS is a massive organisation of which primary care should be the jewel in the crown. That should be the preventative end. It should be the end where actually uh, patients feel they are getting the best possible access and care. And yet in the last decade, we've seen hospital doctors increase by 50% and we've seen the GP workforce stagnate. We have seen some increases in allied health professionals. We've seen increases in administrative staff uh, in primary care. But we haven't seen an increase in the GP workforce. And again, if you think about also the age factor within the workforce, we're going to see an even greater crisis happening. And that's because we have a crisis in the model. So again, Claire said, uh, we have this... um, NHS model, this healthcare model, which was designed decades and decades ago, a time when most of the modern uh, developments in healthcare, most of, in fact, the, the conditions, the diseases, the illnesses that make up the bulk of our healthcare professionals' time, were either just not even thought about or so phenomenally rare. And yet we still think this model, this post-war settlement model is fit for now. Of course it's not. And that's why we're seeing still hospitals um, consuming the vast majority of the resources, despite an almost universal consensus that more investment should be going into primary and community care. We are seeing the literal opposite of that. And in the last five years, the proportion (coughs) of healthcare spending that has gone to hospitals has increased exactly the opposite of what NHS England has said they want to see. And why are we in this situation because we have had soaring demand. We have a crisis in accountability. We have a crisis in our public services, which has left, as one former health minister, uh, Labour health minister, said to me uh, not long ago, the trouble is, Charlie, people just think there's a pill that's going to fix all their ills. And that's why they go to Claire or her colleagues as the front door to healthcare, because actually we, collectively as a population, are not taking enough accountability, enough responsibility for our own health. And that is what is driving an awful lot of the demand and why we turn up at GP surgery for things which have no clinical uh, or no medical requirement. And until we can solve that, we are not going to solve the crisis in primary care. Thank you very much, Charlotte. (laughs) Alison, please. Good afternoon, everyone. In more than three decades as a newspaper columnist, I have never experienced anything like the tsunami of emails from Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners over the past two years. Literally thousands of people terribly upset about their inability to see a GP. Sorry. Some of the stories are just heartbreaking. I'll give you one example. Vera was told by her surgery to take a selfie of the bleeding growth on her back. When Vera protested that she didn't know how to take a selfie, please could you just see the doctor, she was advised to strip off and take a picture with a camera in a mirror. Vera is 87 years old. She told me that she's not bothering to ring the doctor anymore because it won't do any good. They don't care if you die. There are thousands of people like Vera who have given up. They cannot face the badminton horse trial of obstacles put in the way of sick people who just want the reassurance of seeing a doctor. You'll all be familiar with it, I guess. 
ring up at 8am and join the queue of doom. If you're lucky, you might get a call back that afternoon. If you're not lucky, it could be a virtual appointment in three weeks' time. The Office for National Statistics says that the number of people dying in their own homes in the UK has risen by a staggering 30% since March 2020. Nearly eight, sorry, nearly 90,000 excess deaths at home from non-COVID causes. How many of those poor people who would ordinarily have seen a GP and been admitted to hospital died alone in pain because it was so difficult now to access primary care? Whenever I, as a journalist, write about the dreadful suffering of people who can't see a GP, the British Medical Association, among other bodies, will complain that Alison is stirring up hatred against doctors. She doesn't know what she's talking about. There's no difficulty getting to see a GP. Goodness, no. Alison and all those thousands of readers saying they can't see a GP must be making it up. We're not supposed to talk about people like Joy Stokes. Joy tried to get a, to see an appointment to see her GP in 2020 after she developed severe pain in her hip. Joy was not permitted to see a GP. Instead, she was referred for a physiotherapy appointment on Zoom. The physio gave Joy exercises to do, but the pain got worse. Joy, desperate, made phone call after phone call to her surgery, pleading for an appointment. Eventually, her husband, Nick Stokes, a former chair of an NHS trust, went down to the surgery and pounded on the window, shouting that his wife was in agony. A GP finally agreed to see Mrs Stokes. The GP told Nick he was shocked by the deterioration in Joy's appearance. Well, if you'd bloody well bothered to see her, you'd have noticed the deterioration, said Nick. Joy was admitted to hospital, but it was too late. The cancer had already spread to her spine and brain. Tragically, Joy died in January 2021, grossly failed by general practice, as Joy's own GP admitted to her on her deathbed. There are tens of thousands of Joy Stokeses who have been abandoned to their fate, according to Professor Pat Price, one of the country's leading oncologists. As many as 80,000 cancer patients have been lost. Many were not referred for hospital tests during lockdown. An alarming percentage of cancers are now being picked up in A&E because so many people still cannot see a GP in person to pick up the early signs. A national disaster is what Professor Pat Price calls it. And this disaster is not happening in any other comparable country. Only in the UK did GPs stop seeing so many of their patients in person during the pandemic. Doctors in France, the Netherlands, Germany, Australia, they went on seeing patients in person during lockdown. Why? Because doctors in other countries only get paid if they have an actual appointment with a patient. British GPs get paid according to the number of patients on their lists. They still make money if they don't see a patient. Now, you'll all have, um, have seen recently when Therese Coffey became the Secretary of State for Health, a job I guess she might hold until Tuesday, who knows, in the present circumstances. Uh, Therese Coffey set out a new expectation. Everyone seeking an appointment with a GP should get one within 14 days. Two weeks 
two weeks to see a doctor in a country that calls itself civilised. It should be two days, said Fiona, a GP I know in South London. Fiona emailed me in despair. GP services are dreadful, she wrote. GPs need to be made to do all face-to-face. This telephone triage is rubbish. It means double the number of appointments needed for telephone consult, then face-to-face afterwards. I refuse to do phone appointments, says Fiona. They are not safe. Just one, one more. I want to see them all in person. The present system is heartless, totally uncaring. I can't believe what general practice has come to. This afternoon we're going to hear a lot about good GPs, as Claire said, being under intolerable pressure. We'll hear how the UK has failed to train enough GPs to meet the needs of a growing population, as Charlie said. All very good points, all true, but so are the stories of Vera and Joy Stokes, people who are dying to see a GP. Thank you very much, Alison. Okay, Joe, please. So, Alison has had those. Um, am I turned on? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. No, no so the button minute. just. The button. Oh. Yeah, is that it? Yep, right. you're on. Uh, that's that's it. It. Okay, so Alison has um, eloquently talked about terrible, heartbreaking stories. I could also tell you amazing stories of fantastic GP services who looked after my dad, who died at home, as he wished, in July this year. The GP who spotted a really serious illness that my sister had, they saw her immediately, she was in hospital within 24 hours. So we've all got stories that tell the story that we want to use for the narrative. What we have to do, and I think what Claire's done, is to put it into hard facts and figures. We haven't got enough GPs, there are too many patients. There are too many patients with a complexity of needs um, and the system is broken. Now, I know Tony has said very strictly and very fiercely that we are not to talk about overall NHS, but to a certain extent you can't talk about GPs who are the front door and the backstop and the go-between and the gatekeeper and every other metaphor you wish to use. When you have a health service or a health policy that is so fundamentally flawed when it comes to prevention. We feed children shit food at school, the ones that are lucky enough to have school dinners, because the cost of food is going up so they're getting more processed food. We know people eat badly. This government is apparently going to, but who knows what they've done in the last 25 minutes, abandon any plans to to, uh, support campaigns for uh, anti-obesity and the buy one, get one free, and all of that sort of stuff. And Charlotte is right in that she talks about the, the contract between us as patients and taxpayers and the public and GPs. We expect an awful lot of GPs, partly fuelled by, a GP friend of mine said they absolutely dreaded whatever day it is that the Daily Mail does its health stuff, because the following day it's full of people banging on the door saying, I think I've got such and such... I would have been advised to check with my GP. They cannot possibly cope. We keep building houses, we keep expecting them to do more and more and more, as Claire has so eloquently outlined. But we need to take some responsibility, and we need to put pressure on our politicians to take some responsibility. I mean, we haven't even started talking about dentists, which is a whole other uh, area of great shortage which causes terrible things and dentists too because got things that GPs don't necessarily. 
So we need to think about the expectations. Are our expectations too high? Do enough people know the help that they can get from pharmacists, um, that they can get from other places? Do doctor's surgeries make sure that their patients know that actually there'll be a practice nurse, or in my particular surgery there's a blood pressure clinic, there's a diabetes clinic, there's a heart clinic, there's all sorts of these things going on. It's about funneling people into the right area. Not, oh, I don't feel under the weather, I've been meaning to do this for a long time, I'm going to call the GP, I expect an appointment right this instant. My son's a paramedic, and he spends half his life screaming and shouting and banging his head against the ambulance window, taking people to hospital who haven't even been down the road to see a chemist, haven't even tried to see a GP, haven't even looked anything up. They just think it's a taxi service and if they get to hospital, they'll be seen quickly. And as if by magic, it'll go away. We need to talk about where the money goes. And it is absolutely ridiculous that so much money goes to hospitals instead of into primary care. But of course, all MPs, all politicians love a shiny new hospital, even if there's nobody going to staff it. Um, But it's not so exciting to see a GP surgery. And yet every developer in the world that is going to build on farmland and green space promises a new GP surgery. You've got to get the GPs to get them in the surgery. This is the problem. It's a problem of staffing. And we've known about it for an awfully long time. You can't train a GP overnight. The governments, successive governments, have missed the opportunity. And we need to address it now by getting more staff. Thank you, Joe. Thanks very much, Joe. Finally then, please, Sheila. I am on. Right, well, oh, I think it's actually at the moment impossible for GPs to do their job. Absolutely impossible. There are too many patients and not enough time. And time, I think, is probably the most important resource. As, as uh, Claire was saying, uh, people with comorbidity, you need to ask an awful lot of questions to find out what the, what the problem is. Ten minutes, which is the consultation time now, is hardly enough time for some people to make it through the door to the examination table, let alone uh, have time to actually find out what's wrong with you. So I don't actually think it helps blaming GPs for this problem or calling them heartless and that sort of thing, Um, nor do I think it's uh, there are huge numbers of people going to their GPs with no medical problem whatsoever. They, they go to um, see them when they have a social problem, not a medical problem, expecting a medical solution. But I don't think it's, it's, you can't blame them either. I think we have to look to understand the crisis. We, are, we need to look at a much broader social, cultural and political moment that we're living in. So I think the real, the real problem for the crisis of, for GPs is, is the fact that everyday life has become medicalised. And uh, pretty much everything we do now is framed in terms of what the impact on our health will be. So, um, you know, we live in a society where um, everybody's fearful about the future, everybody looks inside themselves rather than looking out. And, And the whole... Uh, our kind of inner selves and that concentration and focus on ourselves has become totally normalised. 
And so what's happened is that life has become refashioned through a medical prison. And I think this obsession, which is self-reinforcing, gives us that um, false promise that everyday problems are susceptible to medical solutions. Take the example of loneliness. Loneliness was there, and, and people talked a lot about it, uh, before the pandemic, post-pandemic, it's much worse problem. And it obviously, there's loads of evidence, loads of surveys that'll tell you it has an impact on our health. But it isn't susceptible to a medical solution. It's, it's not, it's, it's to do with the breakdown of community, the fact that there's a segmentation between generations, and people just don't have those trusting relationships that they previously had. So whilst loneliness is clearly not a medical issue, there are some clinicians who have actually renamed it social isolation syndrome, suggesting that there is a, a medical intervention that would work. And actually drug companies looking for a pill to help people. I think that is such a worrying trend, but it's not on its own. If you look at the uh, anxiety, for example, anxiety is now considered a major mental health problem, despite the fact that most of us will have had at least one anxious moment in our lives, probably several. Um, but now it's a major uh, medical health problem, which is also susceptible to medical treatment, which of course it's not. Reading is going to traumatise us, and it's only a short step. It's not just for children. Adults apparently now are traumatised uh, at universities, People don't want to read certain texts because it's traumatising, which is a mental health problem. And therefore, it's a short step to prescribing Prozac for people who are still having to read The Heart of Darkness. So eating and drinking, obviously, um, an obvious impact on our health. But the, uh, the idea of asking doctors to prescribe cycling to ward off obesity is, is crazy. It's just crazy and GPs have become personal trainers. So over the past 20 years, the issues, not the diseases, uh, that GPs have had to deal with, that they're expected to deal with, have massively expanded. And it's, it's dealing with social problems, things like child abuse, domestic abuse, even spotting terrorists. Now every GP has to go through prevention training. All of this within a 10-minute consultation. So every day, 20% of the people who go into a GP surgery haven't got a medical problem. It's a social problem. Between five and 10 people every day go into a GP surgery because they're lonely. So and we've got a situation where loads of people are out of, uh, 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 on long-term sick. People are taking you know, more than millions of people. Half the population take more than one drug every day. GPs have to manage that. So in conclusion, I think GPs are in crisis. And it's terrible that the resources and time are wasted on people who are not ill. But I think the, um, the start of this is that what we need is much more public debate about what is a medical issue and what is not. Okay, thanks very much, Sheila. And indeed, we do need more debate. And I can see lots of people ready to join. So, <clears throat> we've got some roving microphones. Uh, please, I'd like to ask you to stand up when you speak. If we could have the first microphone, we've got a lady in the middle here with glasses on. 
Yep. And the other microphone, where have we got the second one here? Yeah, if that could come forward, there was a lady at the front. Okay, now we do tend to hear a lot about crises, uh, but it'd be quite good to hear about some ways forward as well. So, uh, um, but I'm not putting pressure on you, the audience, to, to solve this one. Please stand up, though, if you would, for the cameras. Thank you, that's good. Um, I'm just going to fess up from the outset that I'm one of those uh, burnt-out GPs who... Uh, only I'm burnt-out as well. Who only works part-time because that's literally all I can, I can deal with. Um, I'm just going to thank the lady at the end who um, tried to... I think the other four speakers have made some assumptions about what it is that GPs should be doing, and I don't think that those are accurate, but... I won't repeat what you've just said, Sheila, because I think we're on the money. But I do think, um, Claire, that some of that we've created ourselves. So in GP training, we go through this whole kind of idea. We, we spend a lot of time doing communication skills. We become all kind of almost slaves to this kind of compassionate, kind, thoughtful person. But the reality is that you cannot run in time, and you cannot meet the needs, medical needs of a patient if you are also doing all of those other things, and it just can't be done. And I think we need to have a much more honest conversation about it. And to, we can't, we can't or what is my job? I don't think that that's an agreed thing. And I think we have to go back a step and say, what is the point of having a GP? Can I just say one other thing? One just quickly, yeah. Just quickly, about funneling. And I think that also fundamentally misunderstands what a GP does, because you can't know in advance what kind of care that someone needs. And I think one of the real skills that GPs do have, but perhaps isn't seen in other parts of the health service, is that ability to deal with uncertainty and undifferentiated illness, and to be able to make very rapid decisions about how to direct something. And I think that okay. unique skill is lost at the minute. Great, thanks ever so much. Yes, we've got a lady at the front. And then if we take that microphone, we'll go back a bit. There's a gentleman at the, at the very back on the left. On my left, sorry. <laughs> yeah, over there, yeah. Go ahead, please. Okay, I've got three points. I'm very good at being brief, all right. The first one is, I don't understand why we haven't saved up time and resources as a result of going online and all the triage systems, and why that hasn't freed up GP's time. As a management consultant, I don't understand that. Just speak into the mic. Okay, the second thing is, I'm a feminist, I'm a woman, but why don't we train more men? Because they're more likely to work full-time rather than part-time. That would give us more resources. <laughs> and then my, my other question is, why don't we find people for a no-show? Okay, thanks very much. Yes, so there's one at the back. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so thank you. I'd like to just argue a point about GPs not seeing patients and uh, not seeing them promptly enough. I think it's a bit unfair to say that they're not working hard because GPs do a very, very good job. I work in a hospital, but I think if you're seeing patients and they come in late, they come in um, six months down the line, you might not be able to save them anyway. So some of these people are already at death's door when you see them is the first thing. The second thing is I think a lot of GPs don't go into medicine trying to do a bad job. Obviously they're going in trying to do their best and they are the best middle managers. They, on one side, have to treat patients who have a lot of anxiety and it might, might not be the condition that's making them feel anxious, but they've got an anxious uh, disposition or tendency and it's the anxiety of the actual condition. The next part of that is that they're being told from the top down, the GPs have been told they have to do more in a shorter space of time. So, for example, in my clinics, 
I might have to see 10 patients in an afternoon, and if I see them in two hours instead of the three hours that's allotted, I now have an extra hour to work, and I'm being told that I'm not using my time wisely. And so these GPs are then being given more people to see. So instead of seeing 10 people, they have to see 15 people, or they have to see 20 people. And what's the result for it? They get burnt out. So for people that work hard, they're actually told that they have to do more work, not have some, 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 uh, some rewards for their hard work. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Incentivize laziness and mediocrity. Thank you. Right, I'm going to take this gentleman, and then there's a lady in a white top there. And then I'm going to come forward to this, uh, this gentleman with the uh, colourful top. It, uh, hello, thank you. Uh, is on. Uh, sorry, uh, just one second. Sorry, Claire, can you just... Ah, thanks. Cool. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist, actually. I have to say I know Claire's husband and uh, work. And I think there's something that was in our work that I'm sure if you have tasted that, and that is the enormous increase in bureaucracy, the targets, the paperwork we have to fill and also the number of middle managers who are on our back and all these different quangles that come and again push their own agenda on our clinical work. So we're losing clinical work to all these administrative uh, things that we have to do and if you really want to save the NHS, 75% of this work has to go. This is my opinion from my work. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. Right, we've got a little... Yeah, feel free. I want to say something that was very harrowing for me, and I want to know what doctors think. Last year, when my father died at home, I had to, I luckily went round to my mum's distress. She was 90, 91. I had to have a video call with the, with the doctor. And for me to personally diagnose, basically, lift his arm up, can you hear him breathe? That was the way of diagnosing he died. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, it wasn't COVID in the sense, COVID wasn't in the house and it wasn't sort of, you know, the early stages of COVID and I still find that harrowing today. So I don't know whether it still goes on, but it's not the best place when you've got another elderly person in the room hearing this. Yeah. And my other thing is doctors, I think, is, yes, you can get sometimes appointments by the telephone only, but it can be any time during the day. So if you miss that phone call, you don't get enough for appointment. Well, can they not give us a time slot? I accept you can't have an exact time slot, but if you know within the two hours, roughly, you know, give or take, you can make sure you've got your phone on all the time. Okay. Thank you very much. Now, <coughs> you, we can. We, I'm going to take this one more, I said I would, at the gentleman at the front. Then I'm going to bring back the speakers, then we'll do some more, because otherwise it's too much for you to... Too much to I know, but you're not going to answer every question. No, of course not. Right, go ahead. Me? No, it was this yes. gentleman in the colourful shirt, I said. I don't mean to be rude, but it, it doesn't... Uh, if you pass it forward, I'll come back to you in a bit. It's a dress code on question. Okay, yeah. No, I was just for <laughs> helping Sonia to find him. Blimey, go on. So you, you mentioned solutions, and one thing that's popped up in my sphere lately, and I'm kind of back with how this is the common knowledge, because lately I've been learning about foraging and plant medicine, and of course, you know, the idea occurred to me that well, where does all medicine come from? It comes from plants, and one problem I have is I have, oh, I'm developing sort of arthritis in my fingers, and, and as part of this, I learned that stinging nettles, for example, which is everywhere. Um, you can, you can use that to relieve. You can, you can use that to relieve the symptoms of arthritis. And 
So, so I guess it's just trying to plant a seed here. It's just like there's actually something useful to learn about. Um, the more the more we know about plants and medicinal properties, and also awareness of what grows even in our area, because I'm, I'm sort of just discovering that as well, just how many different plants there are. Okay. We can use, yeah, we can then use those as a part. Of our personal responsibility, yeah. Okay, thanks ever so much. Right, so personal responsibility. Um, we've got loads on the table, um, but there's some really sort of key issues. So, uh, Claire, you start. Well, thank you. Can I just say, keep talking about this as about an access issue. Uh, uh, 360 million consultations per year and a 20% increase since pre-pandemic. It's not access, it's capacity. Can we please get the language right? Can you explain that, please? Okay. What we're clearly seeing is more patients more often. So that's the that's what we're seeing. It translates into people not being able. We're actually it's the number of people we've got to see these increased demand that we've got. So it's a capacity. So can we just be really clear then? What you're saying is GPs have worked harder. We agree, or I think largely agree. Uh, they've seen more, you've done the statistics, they've seen you know, 35 million more people the last year compared to pre-COVID, so they're seeing yes. more people, for but for yes. longer, see, but everybody is saying, I just want to check, I just want to understand, Claire, Claire, just to understand, are you saying that people cannot get appointments because well, there is an excess of demand? Can I, can you let me finish? The issue is, what we've got is we have unleashed a demand for care that's required. Now, the lady here talked about, you know, she's a management consultant. How come digital hasn't, hasn't uh, created a space? Because we have got, opened a new runway. Because the, 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 we've seen a 1,000% increase in asynchronous consultation. I don't call video, by the way, digital. Video is just, an, and I'm sorry about your, your father and, and you know, it certifies it. Digital is another, video is another way of seeing face-to-face. It's the asynchronous, in other words, when you send in a, a digital consultation and get that done, that is actually the real uh, innovation. And that has increased 1,000%. And it's mainly young people. It's mainly young people with mental health problems. And it's mainly young people with sexual health problems. And it's also people who, where English isn't their first language because they find it easier. So the problem we've got at the moment is about we haven't got enough GPs to meet the demand of what the patients need. But it doesn't mean that we're not seeing patients. We're seeing vast numbers of them every single day. And I just wanted to pick up the issue about the no-shows. Well, there are no no no-shows. There are no no no-shows. I mean, occasionally you might get someone because the bus has, has been delayed or because the tube broke down. Whereas when I started, 25% of my, my list was no-show. And you've got a breathing space, you went to the loo and you had a cup of coffee. Now there are no-shows, no, no, no-shows. And it, it, it's exhausting, we cannot do it. And by the way, Alison, I dispute this idea that... It, colleagues in France, Germany, were seeing face-to-face patients. If I remember rightly, they too had COVID. The government told us not to see patients. They told us to have half an hour gaps between our patients. So you had one patient in, one patient Do you think that was right, Claire? They told us you cannot catch COVID from a computer and to use the computer to see patients. 
The hospital was using digital. The hospital has moved to video. They don't seem to get the same sort of retribution as we've done when we tried to do our best. I went in every day during COVID. I consulted in an isolated rabbit hutch whilst I could get nothing because that's what my patients were needing at the time. I was running a hot clinic, which is where you saw COVID patients. So I think we need to, you need to clarify your figures that French GPs we're, we're continuing to see patients during COVID. I completely okay, Claire, Claire, I just want you to address one other point before we let everybody else in, which was the issue raised, because you'll be in a position to answer this question, about training. Why are we not training more men? More, well, not just more men. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can choose whether it's well, more men. But why are we not training more GPs? There's a cap, isn't there? No, there's no cap. I mean, there's a cap in every specialty. The problem we've got at the moment is we have no decent workforce planning in this country. We have been seeing the disaster that's happening to general practice over the last 20 years. We have got no incentive for people to go not into hospital medicine. Hospital practice, and excuse me for saying this, but it's far more controlled in terms of your hours. It's far more controlled in terms of your training and, your, and, and where you do. So it's not that, I mean, we have a spiral of discontent now in general practice. I've just come back from Belfast with a new member ceremony, fabulous people. But actually, we have a spiral of discontent. And I've said this at the start. I don't know whether you missed it. Our profession has got between three and five years, I would say, before we disappear. Now, then you will see what happens to 1.3 million people per day when they can't get access to it. But, Claire, sorry, just to, I, I just like a, a really short answer to this question. I, there are... Uh, many, many more students who want to study medicine yeah, in this absolutely. country than we allow to do so. And as far as I can see, they're incredibly well qualified yeah. by their A-levels to do so. Yeah. So yes, we could have a big problem of exodus and there's lots of yeah. problems now. Why are we not training more of those young people well, we who should. want to become doctors? Well, we should. we should be a net exporter of doctors, not a net importer. We've now got 60% of new registrants on the GMC register are trained overseas, whose primary medical qualification is overseas. Why are we not a net? Why do we not train enough? I, I think we okay, should. Okay, so we should. Government. Right. We should. Okay. Charlotte. Um, I mean, where to start? Uh, so, so, just on the work. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Is that working? Yeah. Um, so, just to start on the, the workforce issues. Um, we do have a, a problem with training. I'm not sure we should become a net exporter given the cost to taxpayers of training up doctors. And actually, we have quite a dropout rate uh, when we do train uh, for doctors not actually going through to completion. We have um, quite a lot of doctors, particularly in hospitals, obviously not, not so much GPs, doing private sector work as well, having been funded by taxpayers to train to go into the NHS. So I think there's some quite complicated questions around what we do uh, with workforce, but ultimately it does come back to the basic point that too many of the people we're training up are going not actually just into being hospital consultants, but going into like hyper specialisms. So we've seen this increasing specialisation, quite frankly a reluctance then for hospital consultants to engage properly with primary care. There's no reason why hospital consultants should be sitting and staying in hospitals and not going out and visiting patients who have need. You know, I was talking to a, a primary care uh, somebody who had their own primary care practice in Israel a couple of weeks back. And she said, you know, in Israel we have, we have essentially home hospitalisation and people from hosp working hospitals go to the homes of patients because actually most patients don't want to be in a hospital and it's more dangerous for you to go to a hospital than be treated at home. 
So I think there's lots of issues where we are focusing unfairly on GPs. I think there are a lot of inefficiencies still within GP practices to this lady's point. And even where we have telephone and virtual consultations, there's still a lot of inefficiency built around those. Um, and I think there is definitely room for improvement. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the IT in the NHS, but, you know, suffice to say, there's still fax machines. So I think there is a... Well, they may have now gone, but it would have been literally in the last kind of two years that that was the case. So, so, and the IT is terrible, I mean terrible in the NHS. So in terms of efficiencies, absolutely there is scope for doing that. I did just want to pick up, because I know others will want to come in on, so I'm not going to try and cover everything, but on this kind of bureaucracy and targets and middle management, the NHS has some of the fewest managers in the world. So this kind of myth that the NHS is full of middle managers is wrong. It's about 2%, and if you compare that to the OECD, that's really, really low. And part of the challenge in the NHS is actually we probably need better management, right? That's absolutely the case. But to say it's over-managed is, is just factually incorrect when you look at other countries. I think there's a... Well, you can go and look at the statistics, sir, because that's literally what I've done, and I can tell you internationally it's very low for, for managers. Um, but on the bureaucracy point, I think you're right, there is a lot of bureaucracy. I think the problem is actually less management within the layers of the NHS, and actually the problem is NHS England and the Department for Health and Social Care, of which there are thousands of people sitting in there dictating what literally a GP should be doing in their local community, because somehow the centre thinks it knows best about the local health needs, which is completely wrong. So if you wanted to cut out bureaucracy and you wanted to make it more streamlined, I would shut down NHS England and I'd look at an entirely different model for that and we've at Reform written a paper on that. And it's a very final point, forgive me, but on the targets, you're right. Now, in any public service, what you measure is what then gets focused on and that isn't always what's the most appropriate thing again in a local area. Uh, and professionals often know the things that need to be focused on. But you do have to have accountability and we do have to be able to measure performance. So I think when we attack targets or we attack this idea of measuring performance, we have to be very clear what it is we think we want in place of those things because actually the public have a right to know how the NHS, which spends, what is it now, 150 okay, billion of our taxpayers' money. Okay, Charlotte. I I, I, just to reflect on this, and maybe there'll be time to get the gentleman back in, but I do think he was raising a question about some of the targets that are set and some of the paperwork that's done that is not really about clinical practice. So, so, uh, so that's what I'm saying. If you don't want the targets, what are the targets you want to be measured, right? Because, again, in a democracy, when we're spending £130 billion of taxpayers' money, I want to know what's working. I want to know how many people can access a GP. I want to know what the results of that. I want to know the diagnostics. Now, where there are specific things, and I said at the start, there is. There's massive inefficiencies, and part of that is paperwork that has to be done. Now, I think there's something to do with tech that could be helping to sort that out. Absolutely, let's remove it. But I think the general myth that this is all about bureaucracy and targets and because we have too many managers in the system, it's just wrong. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Alison? I find it a bit surreal, really. We seem to be looking down one end of the telescope, which is from the... Can everyone hear me? Sorry. Yeah. From the GP's end, I have a lot of sympathy for people being burnt out and overworked, but being asked are our expectations as patients too high? No, they're pathetically low. If you lived in Antwerp or Melbourne or Frankfurt and you were felt very, very unwell in the night, you could call a G your doctor tomorrow and get to see them on the same day or the day after. Two days would be considered 
an average kind of waiting time. In this country, we're setting a target of two weeks to see a doctor. It's absolutely appalling. And I don't agree with Claire. Sorry, I know for a fact that other countries do not have seven million people on a hospital waiting list. Doctors I've spoken to knew that what happened during lockdown was going to lead to thousands of people dying prematurely. And that has happened. There have been 90,000 excess deaths in the home since March 2020. What's happened to those people? They haven't been able to see a doctor, all right? So this is a really disgraceful situation and we should be feeling for those people who've paid their taxes. And it's all very well saying, oh, they eat the wrong food or something. They want to see a doctor. It's a fundamental right in a civilized country. And coming back to the training, there is a cap on medical places every year of 7,500. That is ridiculous low, absolutely appalling. We should be training far more doctors. Now, 20 years ago when I wrote, I don't know how she does it, I've talked to lots of working mums who were trying to combine their work uh, with, with a family. And many, many women, guess what, trained as doctors and they wanted to be GPs because it's much easier to balance work and home uh, if you're a GP. Now, I could have told you 20 years ago, you're going to have a lot of women as GPs. So therefore, if they're going to be working two or three days a week, you're going to have to double the number of people you're recruiting as GPs. They should have been doing that 20 years ago. We are bedeviled by short termism and we should start tomorrow. I noticed that Rachel Reeves at the Labour Party conference about 10 days ago stood up and said Labour would double the number of medical training places. Hallelujah. You know, it's high time we did that. And I think this whole, um, are our expectations too high? No, our expectations are not too high. People are dying. People are suffering trying to see a GP, okay? So we need as a country to actually give them the care, the prompt care they deserve. And every day you delay, uh, Pat Price, Professor Pat Price, one of our leading oncologists told me every week, every 10 days that you don't send a patient to an oncologist, you are knocking their chances, 10%, 20% of survival. Thank you, Alison. Sure. I just take issue with Alison on a couple of things. Um, the 90,000 excess deaths, which have been well documented, oh, what is... Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We need to have a little... You need a different coloured card. I do. Turn. Maybe I'll just give you the red card when you... When you when it's, card. No, because yes. it should be red. OK. Go on. All right. <laughs> um, so the 90,000 excess deaths, which we know is well documented... In the home. Yes. Of those people... What is the evidence to suggest that any number of them died because they couldn't see a GP? How many of those people have got underlying health problems? How many people died of heart attacks and things, you know, whatever? I mean, it's a very shocking figure. It's a great headline figure. But the suggestion that 90,000 people died at home because they couldn't see a GP is frankly I'm not Nonsense. saying they all did. I'm saying that a large number of people didn't turn up to hospital because they. The, the reason the A&E is now absolutely rammed is because many people can't see the doctor, so they're turning up at A&E. No, okay, 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 well, okay, okay. Right. Hang on, well, Claire. We'll come back. No, Claire, 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 Claire. We'll come back. Exactly. Come back. It is what Claire says is absolutely true. They can't get people into hospitals because there aren't enough beds. Yes. They can't get people out of 
of hospital because there aren't staff in care homes and other yes. community settings. They can't get people into hospital during COVID because of the, con uh, the, the con restrictions on COVID wards and admissions and things like that. And many, many people actually, I'm sorry, Alison, I fundamentally disagree with you. People expect too much. You can be grossly overweight, you can smoke 100 fags a day, not do a bit of exercise, and all of a sudden go to the doctor and say, I want to lose weight. Um, and the doctor might say, okay, well, let's put you on a diet, let's do this, that, and the other. And you go back a week later and nothing's happened. I've sat in A&E and heard people moan because they couldn't see a doctor or they couldn't get a hospital appointment as though they're booking a Netflix or ordering a takeaway. It is complex. Everybody's needs are complex. It is no good us attacking GPs. You know, there is one GP on this panel. What we need to be doing is attacking and demanding of our politicians an end to this. And the energy that we spend in creating shock headlines about heartless GPs as though they're all sitting there eating marshmallows, painting their nails while old ladies are dying in agony. It's frankly bollocks. And we need to turn that anger onto the politicians of every single party that for years and years and years have thought, if I ignore it, it will go away. OK, thank you very much, Joe. Right, so we're going to take Sheila then back out to the audience. You can see it's getting very fiery. Expectations, Sheila? I think... Um, I think they would there's a great quote from Aldous Huxley which is medical science has made such tremendous progress that there is hardly a healthy human being left <laughs> and I, I kind of think you know there is a sense now where everybody is ill until they're made well instead of being the other way around where you go to your GP when you're ill everybody is ill and then they get a bit worse but essentially I think there are too many people trying to see their GPs when they're not really ill. And then I made this point before about the social prescribing, which I think unfortunately GPs have taken on and really shouldn't have done. Yeah. And, but you know, imagine if you're Rory, if you're, you go to see your GP and you give them, you tell them about your problem and they say, get out of here, you're not really ill. That's not going to happen because GPs are human and they want to help. So they try. But I think that there has to be something, somewhere, a campaign to start removing these social issues away from the GP's door. The GP cannot solve them. It's clear they cannot solve them. And yet they still have to see people who, who are not ill. And, and that obviously is the tragedy, that the people who are ill then can't get the appointments. So, so for me, I think it is a. It, it, I wouldn't put it at the politician store. I think it's a. It's a much broader discussion to be had about how the hell do we stop people focusing on themselves, feeling ill, and going to the GP to, to help when they GPs can't help them. Thank you very much. Right, I know loads of you want to speak. So there's a gentleman at the front who's been waiting for ages. There's a gentleman who had the microphone before. And then the lady here on my left. Go ahead. I've loved this afternoon. It's great to see you all. Um, speak into the microphone and stand up for us, please. Uh, oh, I do apologise. I do apologise. I'm disabled. I apologise. So, um, my name is Dr. Shibu Raman. I've actually got steam coming out of my ears as <laughs> of this. And um, I'll try to be quick. Uh, well, 
I get that thing, I really do, about GPs, social problems. How you got through uh, one out of mentioning social care, God only knows, I had no idea. And you had no mention of unpaid family carers. Uh, I know you want to keep it to the GPs, but this, if you're going to go down the approach of demand management, how you ignore the collapse of social care over the current government and beyond is beyond me. The solution would be to fund it properly, and that goes to Joe's point on freight. Now, look, uh, I don't think it's easy to dismiss the loneliness socialization raised by any other name which smells sweet, but actually, it goes down to the lockdown arguments and, the, and the deterioration I pick up on, sir, of people's mental health. And clearly social isolation, I work in dementia as a physician and I know that social isolation has very bad prognosis on, on uh, has very bad prognosis actually. It makes people with dementia worse. Now, could you just wind up now, please? Yeah, prevention, they really gone very difficult. There are people who don't smoke who get lung cancer. There are people who eat Mediterranean diets who get dementia. And so uh, I really think uh, you should have mentioned austerity because it was the elephant in the room. OK, thank you very, very much. And we've got that gentleman there, and then please the lady uh, with the blonde hair on my left. Hi. And... Um, I was put on a drug called Lanzoprazole when I was 26 and it has basically ruined my health. I wasn't given any informed consent, so in terms of um, planting seeds about what GPs could do, they could talk about the dangers of the drugs they prescribe, like the opioid crisis, I think that's a, a one worth mentioning. There's the proton pump inhibitor crisis that no one talks about, and then of course there's the lack of informed consent around the jab in the 20s. 20s. If doctors don't know what the ingredients are, they can't actually give informed consent, which is the bedrock of the doctor-patient relationship. I don't see any medical ethics present in my experiences over 14 years with the NHS or in recent times. And um, when I confronted my GP about feeling so ill and having all the problems that come with bad digestion, he um, would just tell me that I wasn't really ill essentially, and that I needed to be on depression medication or that I needed to be on some kind of drug for being mental or something, when actually I did actually prove through private testing that I had it and they all agreed that I had it after about five years, but by then the damage was done. So informed consent needs to be given and if doctors don't have the ability to give it because they're ignorant of the dangers of the drugs they prescribe, then they need to find a way to do better because otherwise they're poisoning people instead of healing people. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have the lady here, please, and then uh, see who else wants to speak. Uh, got another lady here in pink afterwards and the gentleman up behind her. We will get you all in. Yes, please. You can't obviously separate general practice from the rest of the NHS. It's, it's just not possible. Um, I think the GPs, uh, I had to agree with an earlier point that the GPs did actually very voluntarily put themselves forward to deal with all sorts of problems which are not strictly, you know, medical problems soluble by, you know, tits, you know, treatments and so forth. But they did take on quite a few of the problems that Sheila highlighted, you know, 
very happily uh, took on things like obesity and, and things like that. Um, so th that's the one thing, but um, that, that of course is, is not the solution for the problems of, of, of general practice now. But it needs to be part of the discussion about the NHS. And I think that's, that's the elephant in the room, right? We have got a health system which is failing, totally failing. And all that politicians are doing are looking for quick fixes, like public health campaigns and everything else, um, in order to carry on the system. There is no body arguing for a fundamental change. Now that may include private practice, it may include bringing general practice into the NHS and not as, pri as, as private sort of contractors to the NHS, dentists and similarly. The discussion needs to be wide and it needs to be open and I think that's the thing we have to argue for. This NHS is not anywhere near good enough. There are plenty of examples of health systems which actually work a lot, lot better. And that's what I think we need to be arguing about. Okay. So, no, no, Jenny, uh, uh, would you just like, because the question was coming up here, can you just give an example and, and, of where better? And, and cost, because it's one thing uh, to say much better and to say private, but then you have to say at what cost. Okay, uh, but let's, let's hear the answer. If you're prepared to, if you're, if you're willing to give an indication of w w where would you say is better and, and, and what's the additional cost? There are examples in, in, in Europe, um, where? Yeah. And Australia, where? Where? At what cost? Even, France, even France, which hasn't got the best of health services, but it's a good deal better than the NHS. I can give you two Australia, examples. No, stop it. She's answering the question we Australia, asked her. Australia has got much, much better. I'm not saying any of these are going to be perfect. All I'm saying is an openness. Australia has a system of integrated private health care and private health insurance and a state service which seems to work very well. Um, everything except the American. So there are plenty of bad examples, but there are a lot of better examples. But the point is not that there's an ideal mm. one, but that we have to arrive at what is best, and that requires a big pu public discussion and perhaps the removal of the health service from direct control by politicians. Great, okay, thank you very much. You can come back in a bit. Right, so more from the audience. Yes, please, lady at the front. Yeah, Hi. go ahead. Um, yes, some practical suggestions. Um, my 88-year-old mother moved from a Suffolk GP surgery last year to a London one. Not a million miles away, it was like two different planets. The IT system between the two GP surgery, they don't talk to each other. We, as her family, had two sisters, it took three of us, had to step in. We got the IT system manual from the Suffolk surgery. We sent it to the London surgery. We talked to the IT managers in both surgeries. Eventually, that all didn't work. She has got a big file. We were told her file was too big to move. But she, I mean, she's had great care from the NHS, so thank you for that. But this cannot be uncommon. 
that the poor GP in the London surgery, we had to push, push, push for all the things to be transferred in the London. I don't know how she managed, and she would tell us, I cannot read through this pile, of this huge file. So that seems like a, a big point. The IT systems, I, I, can't, I couldn't believe that. It was extraordinary that in this day and age, the GPs, and it must be unbelievably risky because knock-on effects of that, have, if we were not doing everything we could, was that things were gonna happen health-wise. We, so administration-wise now, you've got the GPs do all this amazing work, goes to the hospitals, different things. She has on a number of occasions received letters for appointments <coughs> after the date of the appointment. She has even received a call two hours before from St. Thomas's Hospital to say, we know that you don't know you have an appointment today that she's been waiting for, for for a long time, but you have it in two hours. We have moved mountains and somehow got my 88-year-old mother to St. Thomas's, which is not easy on in a car these days, to her appointment. But how many people miss their appointments because of that? A third example is her Sorry, sorry. I, I know it's a very, you're telling a very uh, personal story and an important story for this debate, but, but there's a lot of people okay. that need to get in. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yes, the gentleman behind, and then after that we'll go to the back of the room because they've been ignored for a while. Yes. Oh, yes, I'm um, halfway through a degree to retrain from an engineer to becoming an osteopath. And part of the reason I chose that profession is because of the time it's going to give me to work with patients, see them, potentially give them hands-on treatment. Um, I can only imagine how frustrating it must be to be a GP in the current climate. Um, but I can imagine a future of healthcare where we have GPs and health practitioners empowered to work and do what people do best, which has more, give them more time to listen to case history, empathise, and potentially give hands-on treatment, but also being helped by uh, new technical tools, perhaps you know, AI to support with screening uh, and prescriptions and things like that. Um, and I'm, I applaud everything you said today, Claire, and I'd like to know for myself, as a future health practitioner, how can I, and potentially other people in the allied health professions, best support you and GPs to um, support you in your role and the backbone of public health? Okay, thanks ever so much. Right, we've got a gentleman there in the middle, and then right at the very back in blue who's been very patient. Yeah. Hi, yeah, I'd just like to know, I know uh, they talk about the NHS not working well, and um, I've read a couple of articles about how to improve it, and there's a lot of articles I've read about making it to privatise it. But I know privatisation is quite a sore topic here in, 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 in the UK. I don't really have a bad experience with the NHS. Uh, I've been living here for 14 years, I've been to it once. Um, so I'm just asking, what, what would be so bad if the NHS was to be privatised? But I'm not saying that no, not everyone should have uh, access to, to medical, where some of the articles that, are, that I've read explains like the best way to give everyone access to medical is to take whatever taxes you pay and give it to the people in form of like vouchers or a medical bank account. Yeah. Now, in South Africa, that worked as a system in the private medical aid. So every family, or depends how much who's in the family, gets given a certain amount from the part of the tax and then they can use that to go buy private medical insurance or they join some, join some sort of medical scheme 
would that be a possible solution to help improve the service of the healthcare in England? Okay, thanks ever so much. Yes, the gentleman right at the very back. Thank you very much. Um, the whole debate around the NHS uh, is affected by a bias that doctors are somehow saints and can do absolutely no wrong whatsoever. Now, this has led to quite a few things. Uh, first of all, uh, for example, what Alison pointed out, some flat-out dishonest behaviour from the British Medical Association, a GMC which has, which was working more in favour of doctors than patients. This is a quote from the Shipman Report. I know that was a long time ago, but not much has changed since then, uh, let's face it. A situation where the NHS is practically the state religion of the UK, I know it's ironic to say that in Church House, and a paradigm of debate in which any attempt to place any responsibility on doctors or HCPs in general gets you labelled as someone who's demonising GPs and wants people to die and other sorts of vitriol. But this is a battle of ideas, so let's cut through that paradigm and bias and ask how can we improve accountability for GPs and HCPs in the UK? Thank you. Thanks very much. Sonia, you wanted to ask a question. Yes, that's a quick question that I think would be useful to every point that have been raised so far. The topic of the debate right now is RGP crisis. The members of the panel are talking about responsibilities of GPs, how the system works, how the IT system doesn't work. The people in the audience are bringing in their personal experience as participants, as patients, etc., etc. And then, as a result, I've witnessed there have obviously been some tension, disagreements, responses to each other. But it seems like some people are talking about one thing, something that should be done to the system, or the government, or the IT system, that has nothing to do with, for example, GPs or bureaucracy. All of that are different teams. So I just wanted to ask whether, as you go on to describe things, would you please identify which level of responsibility does your point refer to? Because some problems can't be fixed on one level and can be fixed on another. And maybe as a result, people won't feel like they're being attacked because people think that that's what the problem is. Thank you, Sonia. Um, I'm actually going to let the panel come back now for some brief uh, responses and then get the last round of uh, questions in. Uh, Sonia, you you ask a a very reasonable but actually very difficult thing, I think, for each person to do. But if they're able to, uh, I'm sure they will. But things are actually quite complex. And I think the tension is real. We can't deny it. This is a tense debate. We knew when it was organised it would be a tense debate because it's very, very real and important to people and there's a lot of really difficult issues. And I think the question about that came up from the audience about being open-minded and willing to think about other ways of doing it is, is quite interesting because for a very long time that has been a no-go area in the UK. The NHS has been uh, held in such high regard that it's been a no-go area. And it does feel like now we're getting to a point where people are saying, no, we need to address that question. OK, just to mix things up, we're going to do it in a different order. Um, and actually, I'm going to see who wants to go first. Go on then, Sheila. <laughs> Um, I think I think the key point for me is, which I made before, is the fact that demand has increased enormously in the 20 years where the things that GPs have to cover has increased. Uh, diseases have been re, re, uh, redefined, but there are many, many more things that GPs have to now cover 
than they did 20 years ago. So what they have to cover has increased. But the number of people who are living longer with comorbidity, all of those things also increased. So the, 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 the issue for me, in a sense, is okay, yes, you want to increase the number of GPs. A rethink of the entire NHS is obviously overdue. But it seems to me that there isn't, in the short term, you know, you, there's not a lot that can be done, to be frank, apart from don't go to your GP unless you're really, really sick. Because, because they, they, there's just no possibility of them managing things in the short term. And I, I think that there is an issue in terms of redefining what it means to be ill. Um, I, I, I was struck by, during the pandemic, how many people who were a little bit sick uh, suddenly became really, really ill. And it, it's, it's like, as we've got rid of these terrible diseases that kids used to suffer um, before vaccinations came in and all of that, now, any, any kind of minor illness, people are not, they can't deal with it. It's just too much to be a little bit ill. And so they go off to their GP. And I, I think that getting that demand taken away would at least help in the short term. Okay, thank you. Joe. Um, I agree with uh, the, the comments that have come from the floor. We do need to have a debate, and we do need to have one that is honest, and it needs to be a national debate. But whenever we talk about the health service, as we've seen this afternoon, everybody has got a story to tell, either good or bad, and everybody is terrified of losing something. But we can't go on as we are. The other thing that we need to be honest about, which is, I think was touched on by a couple of um, audience uh, members, you can't have the conversation about the NHS and about GPs in isolation from conversations about housing, about pollution, about austerity, about uh, domestic violence. And that, this is the danger when you get into the... I think, Sheila, you, this might not be your phrase, but the, you know, the worried well, the anxious... Because all the time, for every one of those people that's going, there's probably three other people thinking, oh, it's probably indigestion, I won't bother the doctor. So I think you know, there is an element where we do need public health. We need to take responsibility, all of us, for our, our health and our, that of our families. But we also need to put pressure on hard-pressed councils who haven't got the social workers anymore, the probation officers aren't there anymore, the police are dealing with more mental and social health issues, as are the ambulance crews, hospitals are taking people that used to go to hostels. You know, it's a knock-on effect, and the people who are there, who are the, the kicking boys for everything, are the GPs, because they're about the only place that you can go to for free, even if you have to say, I don't feel very well, but the real issue is I'm living in an overcrowded house. I've been on a council waiting list for five years. My partner's beating me up and I'm nearly going spare. But no, actually, I haven't got any symptoms, but I'm at my wit's end. Okay. We wouldn't be able to function without GPs, but we all need to support them by looking at how we use other bodies and put pressure on our politicians to support the rest of them. OK, thanks, Joe. Uh, Alison? <coughs> Yeah, I was talking to a GP friend, and I think this comes back to something that something that Claire said. So my doctor, my friend, doctor friend said that 
prior to COVID, GPs were already running at 98% capacity, okay? That demand has now gone up. There's just no room. There's no room in that system. I would say this country has seen in the last 10, 20 years a lot of immigration, which has been fantastic, very beneficial to the country. But governments have not ploughed back the profits of immigration into the public services. You cannot have an extra million, two million people coming in and not expand your number of GPs. It's absolutely ridiculous. And there's something that Claire alluded to earlier, actually. So lots of GPs are saying they're referring patients to hospitals and then they don't get seen or appointments are cancelled. So those patients are pinged back to the GPs to review the thing the GP referred them for in the first place. So a GP I spoke to said she'd sent someone with a very serious heart problem. They said, no, Fiona, you take them back. She said, I'm not a cardiologist. So there are all these all these kind of problems. But I think coming back to what someone, a gentleman back there said, I think we do need to look at the way the thing is funded. Um, countries like the Netherlands, you know, many countries in the world have uh, a, a a mixed funding, public and uh, private. It doesn't. It's not the horrible American system, red in tooth and claw. It does protect the weakest, and it gives more money in in the pot for everyone. And quite frankly, looking at the next five or ten years, if something doesn't change, we are going to look. We'll be seeing more and more avoidable premature deaths, which would be an absolute tragedy for everybody. Thank you, Alison. Um, Charlotte. So, do we need a big conversation and honest conversation about the? Sorry. Okay, can you hear me now? Uh, do we need a big and honest conversation about the future of? Um, actually, I don't think we should talk about healthcare, but health in this country, as I think you've heard from all of us. And it's interesting that actually there's estimates that only about 20% of health outcomes have anything to do with healthcare. And I think we obsess and we pour all of our money into the NHS and the healthcare system, whilst actually the more we pour into that. And, you know, you want to talk about austerity, actually, health healthcare, the NHS has been pretty well protected. The bulk of the additional spending, about three quarters of the additional spending since 2010 that's gone into public services, has gone into the NHS. And what does that mean? That we're reducing spending on all those areas that we've just heard are actually the health-creating end of public services. Um, I'm, I'm going to do a plug. Uh, so we at Reform Think Tank uh, have literally just launched a programme called Reimagining Health. And actually, if you go to the uh, Battle of Ideas website for the, and, and this event entry, our paper is the first uh, uh, kind of um, suggested read. So I, I do kind of please encourage you to go and look at that because we are asking exactly that question. We're asking what would it actually take to boost the health of the population? What is the role of healthcare within that? And how do you fund it? Because unless we're willing to talk about those three separate questions, we are not going to solve either the GP crisis or the hospital crisis or the social care crisis that, Sarah, you mentioned. We could talk about the mental health crisis. We could talk about the public health crisis. Every element of our approach to health is in crisis at the moment. And part of the challenge is we're not having an honest conversation. And I just want to link it back to um, uh, this this point about... um, criticising the system, because I think that's actually a really important one. And actually, Alison uh, uh, kind of mentioned the the sort of response during the pandemic. We we published a paper and we said during the pandemic, we didn't have a national health service. We had a national COVID service. And actually, a lot of the decisions that were taken as part of the pandemic um, meant that people couldn't access. Now, there are lots of reasons why, but we deliberately took a decision that meant that a lot of different national health service 
uh, provision was actually withdrawn in one sense, and that has created a lot of the problems now. When we published that paper, the medical director of NHS England and the head of NHS providers came out telling us that we were in some way attacking healthcare workers. At no point had we said that, but that's exactly the gentleman's point at the back, that we came out saying, there is a problem with the system here, it's not resilient enough, it needs to be reformed, and the response was... You're attacking doctors. Okay. And we can't have that. I'm going to make no, one no, more No, 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 because we're going to get another round of audience in and you get your last final minute. <laughs> Otherwise, we won't get audience in. Claire. Thank you. Um, I'm in broad agreement with everybody. Actually, also with you, Alison, I think there's a lot of common ground that actually we've, we've had. And I think your, what you've just said about, and it is an important question, why are we so fixated on health as opposed to good education, good social systems, etc. So I will read that today. I just want to make a few points. I, I'm really sorry, really, really sorry we can't deliver the care that our patients need. I'm really sorry. There are solutions. I said to you that we have a system built up in the medieval times. What I mean by that is that we have a national hospital system that was set up after the last plague not the plague that we've just had, but the Black Death, where we had the clever people and the diagnostics in those shiny buildings and what was the grocers and have now become the GPs in the community. Patients do not fit that system anymore. We need to break down those walls. We need to bring those hospital doctors out of that, those, those institutions. We need to get rid of outpatient departments. We need to do actually what we see on the continent which is, I think, what we see in Israel and what we see in other places, which is co-located services uh, supporting us, not me having to write a letter. How humiliating is it to have to write a letter and then get a letter back saying you can't refer this patient? Or even the, the hospital specialist giving me a whole load of things, which I knew anyway, rather than treating the patient. Not all, but we need a new system. What I do and what will save you an awful lot of hassle is if I can go back to providing you with continuity of care. If I can know you and know you in the context of your family and your communities, I cannot do that now because I'm delivering Uber-style medicine. Fast, instant, today, 45% of patients, by the way, have seen on the day that they asked to be seen. We can't deliver Uber-style if we also want to save costs and make you feel better and fundamentally measure health, not on the, the, the quantity of your life, but actually on the quality of your life, which okay. we can't do at the moment. Thanks very much, Claire. Excuse me, can somebody uh, so, just so, address so, the informed consent questionnaire? I'm not sure I understand that, because we never prescribe a medicine without discussing it right. with a patient. So, 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 excuse me, sorry. Okay. Excuse me, there's a lot of other people who want to okay. speak. Dr. I saw the yeah. Claire has just uh, excuse me, sir. Claire has just said that she's happy to talk to you afterwards. Um, okay, right. So we've got time for maximum four burning points. And if you put, we got one. Excuse me, please, sir. One lady there. Uh, yep. Yeah, one lady here and another lady here. Okay. So we'll stick with three. Yeah. So. Behind you, Sonia, and then, yep, go ahead. Um, okay, I'll keep Real brief, yeah. As I can. Um, I am a medic, okay, I work in secondary care. I feel incredibly sorry for GPs because they're getting it in the neck. This has been a perfect storm. I, I started training over 30 odd years ago when they reduced medical schools. My school was from having 400 between two 
universities down to 110 applicants within three years of restarting medical school. And that was across the UK. 25 years later, you get me and the number of doctors, that low number. Before COVID, we had an awful situation. We knew there was a massive workforce issue. We also knew we had a massive um, increased age. Guess what happens? We have COVID. We take all those elderly patients, we pluck them, and say, stay at home because you'll be safer there. They're deconditioned, and now we are where we are. Okay. I've been given a five-minute warning. I'm real sorry. All I'm going to say is, whatever happens now, two things. One, we need to disconnect the NHS from politicians. They work on a four-year service. We need a ten-year plus service plan. Okay. Secondly, is very last point. Ten years from where we are now to get the healthcare that we all want in this group. I want. My patients so they were my Okay, thank you very much. Right, now, we've got two people speaking. You've got maximum 30 seconds each, I'm sorry. <laughs> Panel, they're so strict here that you get 30 seconds each for, for your final comments. Yeah, go. Yep. Um, I would like to ask the doctor, really, again, whose idea was it to form the these health partnerships? I... My own doctor's practice on COVID, it really did supply everybody's needs. Just before the pandemic, these huge health partnerships took over, whereby about eight of the general practices all went into one history. And it's been a disaster. And Alison was right in so much as my best friend tried to get her husband to see a GP. And she was told to take him to the hospital, which she did. And she was told off at the hospital for having taken him when she should have gone to the GP. Please, so I can't answer the these Yeah, they're too specific. She can't possibly answer your question. I don't know which health partnership. Okay, sorry. Apologies. It's not possible, okay? Okay. Yep. Right, very quickly. Yeah, my question's about expectations, which you've heard about, supply and demand. Claire's words about more patients more often. My question is simple. Can supply ever meet demand for a service that remains, that remains free at point of use? Okay, thank you very much. Right, okay, final thoughts. Claire. Uh, can supply ever meet demand? No, it can't, but we can do it a lot better than we can do now. We've put the workforce and the resources and the buildings and the structures and the systems in the right place. We can do better. Thank you, Charlotte. Brilliant final question. Uh, no, it can't unless we rethink the model entirely. And that's why it's no good talking about austerity because the thing is unsustainable. Alison? No, I think we're going to have to be open-minded and look at other countries, how they fund their healthcare in the short term. Let's revise this pensions cap for GPs because they used to work till 65, even over, and now there's this ludicrous bias against them working. We need as many of those fantastic GPs as we can. And I would bring back the nurses' bursary immediately. What was George Osborne thinking about? Absolutely ruinous, depriving a lot of young men and women the chance to become uh, medical professionals. Thank you, Joe. Uh, not as bad as turning nursing into a degree-only job. We at one stroke got rid of the layer of what used to be the SEN nurses yeah, and put them down in the level of Absolutely, health care. Yes. 
It's a huge debate. We could go on all afternoon. It's about honesty. And that's what we need to push for and what we need to say when we're having conversations about the health service. Thank you. And Sheila? I, I go back to my original point, which is that I think we need a debate about exactly what we mean by health and what GPs should be doing um, and move away from GPs being expected to be the first port of call, not just for medical uh, issues, but everything. Now, before, okay, let's uh, one round of applause for all the...